Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the, of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant. And at them, at him rather, they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another, and him they killed. And many others, beating some and killing some, therefore still having one son, his beloved. He also sent him to them last, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and, and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and, and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hip hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to him, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man, man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. And Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken, because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but, of, but the living, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard, him, heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole of the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far away from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Then Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Let's pray together. Lord, we yield our hearts to you. We thank you for your word. We're so grateful, Lord, that you've given us your word to, to let you build our lives upon. So, Lord, we yield our hearts now. We want to be teachable. We want to be taught by you. We want to have this be used in our lives to make us more like Jesus. And so we yield our hearts to you today, Father. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we've been looking at, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Mark, um, because we've been all over the place and for different reasons. And it's good to remind ourselves where Jesus is at. He's already ascended up to the city of Jerusalem, and that's where he's at. And he's engaging now the religious leaders. The religious leaders are mainly focused or, or concentrated in the area of the temple courts, and so when Jesus withdrew at different times, as we saw, as we've gone through Matthew and Mark, we've seen him withdraw. The temptation is to think that he's doing that because he's maybe not, you know, doesn't like confrontation or he's afraid or he doesn't want to deal with them and somehow he's intimidated. I mean, we don't, wouldn't think that. That's other churches. That's not us, you know. But, uh, you know, that, that's the, what the world for sure would say. But in reality, he knew that there was a timing for everything, a very critical timing for everything that was going to happen in his public ministry. He needed to enter into Jerusalem at a very specific time. And so that timing was not going to be interrupted. But now he's come to Jerusalem. It, his time is at hand. He's about to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. So now he is going to talk to those Pharisees and those religious leaders. We saw that when we were in the book of Matthew. And he's not afraid of them at all, <laughs> at all. And he's there to confront them. He's there to pronounce judgment on them in some ways. He's also still trying to reach them. He's still trying to reach those Pharisees. In, in Matthew's gospel, I think it's in chapter 19, where he lays out the most stinging rebuke of those religious leaders. He's still reaching out. He's still trying to get them to turn and repent and all of that. But he is exposing them for what they are and he is exposing them for what they've said and done, how they've 
withheld taking the leadership role like they, they should have related to pointing people to the Messiah. Just think of the influence that they had. Just think of, you know, just the, the, the credibility that they had within the people's eyes. And if they all collectively with one voice said, this is the man that we've been waiting for. This is the promised Messiah. This is the one about whom the prophets spoke so clearly by the Holy Spirit that when he came, we wouldn't miss him. This is the prophet that Moses spoke about. This is the, the, the suffering servant that Daniel spoke about. All of those things, they would have just, they would have in mass turned to, to the Messiah. But they didn't. They didn't lead in that way. And that's what Jesus is going to get to today as we look at the rest of the, this chapter 12, at least the first 40 verses, is that he's going to expose them for what they really are. And he's going to expose his greater plan for the nation of Israel and all of that. So he begins in verse 1 by saying, Luke, Mark does rather, then he began to speak to them in parables. And he begins this parable and he says, A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, these religious leaders, they knew the scene. This would be very, very familiar to them. They would be very familiar with how vineyards operate and how they work and what the, the landowner needs to do to make them function proficiently and efficiently. But there's more to this. It's not, their familiarity goes deeper, and it touches on the lesson that the, the Lord Jesus is trying to get across to them and hold them accountable. We're going to see them ask him various questions to try to trap him. But he's going to expose them for who they are. And so that the deeper meaning or the deeper thing that they would be familiar with was what, God was, what he was saying because related to what God had already said about what, what Israel is and what Israel is supposed to do and the function and, and that how God was intending Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. And they, so they, they didn't understand that. They didn't want to understand that. They want to think about it. There was great racism uh, in their hearts and pride related to who they were. And the Gentiles were the same way against the Jews. There's this long, long, long animosity that was going on. But God's heart had always been not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. He wanted to reach the whole world, promised it to Abraham. He pro- I mean, over and over again, he expressed this light to the, the Gentiles. God has many names for Israel. Many names. When you study the Old Testament, you see there's many ways of referring to, to Israel um, overall. And so, uh, one of those names is, we've already seen that he refers to him as the fig tree, as we've looked at uh, these different passages, but also he refers to them as a vineyard and also as a vine. And we're going to look at a couple passages related to that. There's a well-known, and I've said it before, but I just want to repeat it. There's a well-known hermeneutic principle or a Bible interpretation principle that says that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, meaning that as you study the Old Testament after having already been given the New Testament, you can see things in the Old Testament that relate to the New Testament in there. You can see what it's talking about. But then when you get to the New Testament, you can see that the New Testament sheds further light on the old and you learn things that you never would know before and fully understand it based on the last revelation, the New, the New Testament. And so with these, 
designations related to Israel um, in the Old Testament, it, it kind of really helps us understand what Jesus was really saying to these religious leaders. Because they had a working knowledge of the Old Testament. They knew exactly what he was saying, what he was referencing, what he, what he was talking about. And, and so we need to see that as well. Let's turn, hold your place here, and turn to Isaiah chapter 5. There's going to be two passages that we're going to look at related to helping us understand this parable. Isaiah chapter 5. Very powerful passage. No shame in using the table of contents. You might have the Pharisee tabs with the little, you know, tabs on it, you know. Um, no, there's, you're not a Pharisee if you have those tabs. But uh, that's the old joke related to them. No shame in any of that. Isaiah chapter 5. I want to begin reading in verse 1. It says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. Notice the word fruitful. Verse 2. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it, notice the word expected, he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judea, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. Verse 4, what more could have been done to my vineyard? Now I want you to notice that phrase, what more could have been done. That's going to come back in our passage in Mark. What more could I have done to my vineyard? That I have not done in it. Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, for, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Now turn over to Psalm 80. Psalm is, Psalms is, is in the middle of your Bible. A lot of Psalms there. Psalm 80. We'll begin reading in verse 8. Psalm 80, verse 8. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. That's Israel. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with its bows. She sent out her bows to the sea and her branches to the river. Why have you broken down her hedges so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? Notice the word fruit. The boar out of the woods uproots it, and the wild beast of the field devours it. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit the vine 
and the vineyard which your right hand has planted, and the right hand is always in the scriptures referred to God's power because people are usually right-handed and that's the, their strong arm. Your right hand has planted and the branch that you made strong for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand. He's talking about Jesus. Upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O God, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Now you can turn back to Mark chapter 12. Let's continue in verse 1. And he leased it to vine dressers who went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Verse 4, again, and that's a repeating word that's very important. Again, he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Now, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 4 that we looked at, I highlighted the phrase, what more could have been done? What more could I have done? So God has made this whole arrangement with Israel and wanting these vine dressers, the ones that are taking care of it, these religious leaders, to work and be faithful and to accept the messengers and all these other workers and all of that to be able to have it bear fruit. That's the issue with God is fruit. Israel is supposed to produce fruit. And, and God is saying, what more could I have done? I sent prophets some of them were tortured. Some of them were killed. We see that in Hebrews chapter 11. Messenger after messenger after messenger was sent to them to tell them the truth about what they needed to do, and they ignored it all. And then he gets prophetic in verse 6. Look, look with me there. It says, Therefore, still having him one son, his beloved. Notice he reveals that. His beloved. The son that he loved. He also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. So imagine Jesus saying this. Imagine him expressing this there. He's already expressed the history of Israel, basically, that this whole thing was started by God. He's the one that planted the, the vineyard, he's the one that owned the land there and then they rejected these messengers these prophets and all of that and then the son was sent and they're about to crucify him they're about to do this they could have all repented but they didn't they chose not to he's getting into the future now he's saying that the son is going to come of the of the landowner and you're going to reject him and 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 kill him and this is where we really see the love of god being exhausted because there wasn't going to be anyone else sent God is not going to send anyone beyond his son. You know, in Hebrews chapter 1, it talks about in these last days he sent forth his son. In prior times, he sent his prophets. But in these last days, he sent forth his son. He's the last revelation of God. It's the last messenger. And they rejected him. And what more could he have done? Just like Isaiah chapter 5 said. 
what more could I have done in this vineyard? What more could I have done to make it a blessing that I intended it to be so that it can bear fruit and, and make a difference in this world and reach the Gentiles, but they rejected and they rejected and they rejected. And, and so we see that this love, this expression of love, sending forth his son, being sacrificial. You know, when you talk about the parable, when you talk about him sending forth these different servants and all of that, and they reject him, that didn't really cost the landowner all of that much. But to send his son, that's how much he wanted that, that vineyard to succeed. He sacrificed his son and risked his son. And, and, and so it's a great expression. I mean, you couldn't have a greater expression of God's love. First John chapter 4, verses 9 through 11 tells us this. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Beautiful expression of love. There's no greater expression of love than him sending the son. So all of this happened now, and he's speaking to these religious leaders and um, he demonstrates to them again. This is beyond the just the vineyard and the and the the um, the business and the, all of those things. This has to do with something way deeper. They knew all about Isaiah. They knew what he said. They knew what it said in Psalm eighty and other places. He knew what he was. They were. It was getting across. It was very clear to them. And so Jesus wants to ask a question. They're going to be asking him questions. He asks a question first in verse nine. He says, therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Now, you may remember in Matthew, when we went through Matthew verse by verse, we saw these chief priests and elders answer him, and they said this, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. So they answer, but then in Mark we see that Jesus added to their answer and he agrees and continues in verse 9 and adds to their answer by saying this. Jesus said he will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. So they said something back to him. He added to it and he said that exactly right. He's going to do this. He's going to destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And then he says something that you know insulted them. <laughs> when he says, have you not even read this scripture? I mean, it's hard for us in our context to fully appreciate what kind of an insult that was to them. These guys were the experts. Nobody knew more than them. They had the corner on all these things. They studied and studied and studied and studied and studied. But yeah, you can study the scriptures, but you can miss the sun. You can miss Jesus. You know, Jesus at one point said, you study to show yourself. You study the scriptures because you think in them you'll have eternal life. But, but these are they that testify of me. So they miss the whole entire thing. But he says, have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This was the part, this messianic uh, part of the, the Psalms where they would sing on the way up to the feast. We've already gone through that. And they would sing these things. That's what they were singing during the triumphant entry. We also saw that the children were, were, were uh, saying this in the courts, and the religious leaders told them to make them stop because they wouldn't speak to children. They wouldn't speak to women or children. 
And he said, make them stop. And they'd have to stop singing this messianic psalm about uh, the Lord Jesus. And so um, this cornerstone, this chief cornerstone, some people think chief cornerstone is a capstone. You know when you have an arch and you have this capstone that's at the top that is the last piece that puts in? That's not the cornerstone. A cornerstone is something that is laid on the ground and the foundation is measured off of that stone. Everything has to line up with that particular stone itself. And so it was a biblical thing that, that was spoken of many years ago in Scripture where he says that this, this chief cornerstone is the stone that the builders rejected. No builder in their right mind would reject the chief cornerstone. That's the foundation. Everything else is measured off of that. And that's, that's important for us. Jesus is still the chief cornerstone. He's still the standard. He's still that which we measure our lives off of. He and his word, we measure our lives off of that. It's amazing how we can make other believers be a, a moral standard, someone that we really respect, someone that we see is used by the Lord greatly. We make them be the standard. When they're not, we're not called to, to be the standard of other people. We're, the, the Lord's the standard. He's still the chief cornerstone. He's still the standard. The God's word is the standard there. And so they, they are, they're going to reject him, and he's talking about that. But notice the, the verse 11. It says, this was the Lord's doing. The Lord did all that. The Lord made him the chief cornerstone. They didn't make him the chief cornerstone. And, and he's allowing all of this to happen. Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world, we're told in Scripture. So this was the Lord's doing, and it says, and is it marvelous in our eyes? It's a question. Is it marvelous in our eyes? Is it, I mean, it could lose its luster in our hearts, this, how special it is that he is the Messiah. He is the promised one. We can start having that, that the fullness of what that represents wane in our hearts and, and lose its significance, especially in how we live our lives. It is a marvelous thing. Now look at their response in verse 12. And they sought to lay hands on him, and they weren't praying for him. Trust me. That's not what it means when it says lay hands on him. They sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude. See, these were man-pleasers. These religious leaders were man-pleasers. Not just because they, not because necessarily they respected the common man, but because they loved their power. And they loved their power because their power got them money. It's the same old thing. Nothing's new under the sun. False prophets, false religious leaders, they're in it for themselves. They're in it to fleece the flock. And they, they knew that if they didn't have the people's respect, they would lose their, their racket, so to speak, or lose their thing that they were doing in the temple, of, or the, in the temple area related to the, the, the court of the Gentiles and the money changers and all that stuff. They were ripping people off in other ways, too, which Jesus will get to in a moment. But they didn't want that. They didn't want to lose that respect. And so they couldn't. That's, well, you ever wonder, why didn't they just arrest Jesus when he was in plain sight? Because the people. They feared the people. They had to wait to where he was somewhere at night to where no one was around before they could, so they could arrest him. And that's what they did. And, and we'll see that as we get closer uh, to the crucifixion. And we continue in the middle of verse 12. For they knew he had spoken the parable against them. Now, how would you like a parable spoken against you? <laughs> that wouldn't be very fun. You know, that a parable was just said now, and that's supposed to indict me related to my behavior. That's what happened. So they left him and went away. They lost. One zero, Jesus. 
You know, they're, I got zero now. They're, 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 not, they're not batting very good right now. And they're going to um, come and ask him some questions in verse 13. And notice the ironic bedfellows there in verse 13. When they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. And Pharisees and Herodians hated each other. Pharisees didn't like Rome, didn't like any of those things. The Herodians, they, all they wanted was power, and they respected Rome, and they were uh, an ally of Rome, and so they hated each other. But, of course, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and so they're going to work together here, and they want to catch him in his words. Don't you love when people want to catch you in your words? They don't need my help. <laughs> catching me in my words. I can say some pretty dumb things without people asking me questions. So verse 14, when they had come... They said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Talk about buttering him up, you know, and people do that. And they ask, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Since A.D. 6, they had been paying these taxes to Rome. And there are three different taxes. There was a ground tax where they had to pay you know, 10% of their grain, 20% of their wine and fruit. They had to pay an income tax, which was 1%, which we would, like, dream about for us, 1% income tax. And then they'd have a poll tax, which is one denarius, which equaled about one day's wage. Now, the Herodians didn't care about this too much, about paying to, to Rome these, these taxes, but the, but the Pharisees really hated it. They hated it because they, they were an occupied country, and paying taxes to Caesar would fund those that were occupying them and make it possible for that to continue. So they think that they have Jesus. They know that if Jesus says yes, then he loves Rome. And then the Jews can turn from him. But if he says no, then the Herodians can tell the Romans and he can be got into trouble that way. So they've been thinking about this for a while. And these are smart cats. Not really cats, but they're smart people. And, and they've thought this through. They thought they have him. There's a no-win situation for Jesus. You can imagine their faces. It's like, I can't wait to get this question out. He's toast. No matter what he says, it's over. He's going to be done. But the problem is, in Scripture, we're told that God knows our thoughts from afar. It's kind of, before we think them, he knows what our thoughts are going to be. Kind of a disadvantage when you're trying to trap someone or debate uh, them. You, you can't really debate God well <laughs> at all. Um, that's not something we should try to, to do. So he continues, but he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. So obviously we're supposed to pay our taxes. So they were saying, should we pay or not pay? He's saying you should pay not one or the other, but both and. You're supposed to be paying both. You're supposed to be paying our, your taxes. And no Christian should be doing a tax evasion, for sure. Uh, we're just to pay our taxes. Not overpay, for sure. That's not a good stewardship, especially with our government. Uh, but we should pay our taxes. And then, but we also should pay to God what, what, what's, uh, the things that are God's. Now, he's gonna, next week, he's going to get into the, you know, watch the, the, the widow, give her mites and all of those things, and we're going to see that. But he's saying that the things that are God, you need to pay those things. You need to give those things that he wants us to give. So we need to be giving and all those things. But also, in a broader sense, we're God's. We, we're his possession. And he, and he wants us to give all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, as he's going to get to in a moment. 
And so we're called to be a living sacrifice um, acceptable to him and all those things as Romans chapter 12 reveals. So it's interesting that it says that they marveled at him. Did you see that at the end of verse 17? And they marveled at him. The problem is they didn't submit to him. They didn't marvel at his answer that he got out of that. They did a little, uh, you know, revelation jiu-jitsu on them, you know. Uh, tap, they're tapping out. They're marveling, but they're not submitting. They should have repented right there, and so, and, but they didn't do that. And it's as amazing to all of us, the people that can be marvel at Jesus but not submit to him in this world. They can think that he's amazing and say, post all kinds of things and, and put memes on social media and all these things and talk about how great he is, but they don't want to submit to him at all. And Jesus said, why do you call me Lord if you don't want to obey the things that I say? Those two are mutually exclusive. But it's not just with unbelievers, it's with us too. We can marvel at him and be amazed at him, but be in willful disobedience to him at the same time. And he doesn't want that double life. He doesn't want us to live that kind of life. And, and his discipline surely comes as a result of that until we repent. Verse 18. Then some Sadducees, so we have a new group now, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. Excuse me. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died. Nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose, life, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Now, that cracks me up because these Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. They didn't believe... In any of those things. They were the liberals. They were the materialists of, of that day. And Deuteronomy chapter 25, you can write this in your margin here. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, is the, it kind of is the origin of this question. And so what it has to do with is that when a brother died of a, of a man, he, could, he was supposed to marry his, 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 uh, his brother's wife, his sister-in-law, to be able to have children, if they didn't have children, if they had children, that wasn't the, it wasn't an obligation. But if they didn't have children to pass on the name, then they would be obligated to do that. And there were consequences if they refused. And you can read about it in the in the chapter in Deuteronomy chapter twenty-five. But what's funny to me is that they make it so incredibly crazy. When would this ever happen? Seven brothers and all of they never had children, each one of them all the way down. It's like you would have the same problem for Jesus. The problem, the apparent problem, would be the case if there were two brothers and that's it. It would be, cause the same issue that whatever it is they think they're going to trap him in, would, two would be sufficient, these two brothers, but they'd go way beyond seven. It's like, there's no way. It's impossible. Every brother I add to this thing makes it more impossible for him to answer. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And this is what Jesus answered. Jesus answered and said to them, are you not therefore mistaken? They don't want to hear that. No one, wants to, no one of those guys want to hear that they're mistaken because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So that just lets us know there won't be any weddings in heaven. There won't be any marriage in heaven. The angels are ministering spirits. And we don't have no idea what God's going to 
allow for us there related to relationships and all of those things and the fulfillment that we'll have. And we don't have no idea what he's going to do. But we know that this version of marriage or this entity that we get to enjoy, and it, it mainly points to the church's relationship with Jesus, we know that that's going to pass away. And so he, uh, he's going to give them further correction here. But I love the fact that he reveals what the future is going to be for us and in, with related to marriage. And now he's going to correct them about the resurrection. He's going to, he says, verse 26, But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in, in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Now, the first thing we need to know is that for Sadducees, they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. The Pentateuch, that's what it's called, the Pentateuch. They only believed that. And so it's fitting that the Lord Jesus answered them from one of those books, from, from Genesis there, or Exodus rather. And so he answers them and he says that, you are wrong. You're, you're completely off because God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And it's all hanging on one-tenth of a one word. Look at the middle of verse 26 where it says, I am. That's present tense when he said it. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, he said this to Moses about 400 years later. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob been off the scene for about 400 years. And he says, I am currently, right now, 400 years later, their God. And he's not God of dead people that don't exist. He's the God of living people that are alive. So there obviously has to be a resurrection. So you don't know your own scriptures. You only picked five to believe in, and you're wrong in those. <laughs> you know, I love that. It's just like, checkmate. <laughs> you can't debate God. Okay, verse 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceived that he had answered them well, asking him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all of your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. This, is, this first commandment is called the, the Hebrew Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4. They would say this every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they would say that every day. So he's saying love is the greatest commandment. Now, in our culture, we think that love is a feeling. You know, we've lost that loving feeling, you know, just lost it. This is like elusive, Whoop, gone. Wake up one day, my love for you is gone. I can't get it back. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. Trying to get that love back and it just won't come. That's not biblical love at all. Love is a commitment. Love is doing what's best for the other person, even at our own expense. It's not involved in a feeling. There's no feeling. Feelings can be there. That's affection. That's what people mistake for love. Affection is not, affection is elusive. It can come and go in the sense of our feelings. But love is something way deeper. It's a commitment. It's a willful, volitional thing. I can commit at any time to somebody if I choose to. 
So you have no excuse. You can't wake up one day and say to your spouse, I don't love you anymore. What you're saying is, I choose not to commit to you anymore. And that's a willful thing. It's, it's not out of your control. You have control over that. Any one of us can say, I commit to you at any time that we want to. And so that's what we need to see. And what's interesting, he doesn't say, obey the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He tells us in other places to obey him, of course. I'm not minimizing that. But if you love him, Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. God knows that if we love him, then we will be obedient to him. They go together. You can't divorce those things. You actually prove whether or not you love God, whether or not you're obeying God. If you're not obeying God, that you're not loving. No matter what you say with your mouth, no matter what you feel, no matter what anything is going on with, with our lives, if we're not obeying him, then we don't love him. And so that's the test. Do I obey him? He wants us to love him. They go together. But he says the second is like it. it the first one's this way. The second one is this way. And the second one is, is unconditional as well. But he, he says that love your neighbor as yourself. And there's, such, there's so much worship songs and teachings out there that talk about I need to learn how to love myself. So then once I love myself, then I can love other people. What he's inferring in here is you already love yourself. You know, you could say it this way. You shall love your neighbor as you already love yourself. Oh, I, I hate myself. You don't probably hate yourself. There are some people that do to a, in a point, at some level. But, you, you know, you look at it, the old saying goes, if you see a picture and you're, you say, oh, I, I look terrible. Well, you're, you're upset that you look terrible. So, you, you, I mean, when you go to a, a group picture, who do you look for first? You look for yourself. And if you're like, oh, I'm ugly and you're mad about it, well, why are you mad about it? Because you love yourself. You don't want to look ugly. No one, you know, so it, it, that's the problem. We already love ourselves too much. That biblical counseling class that we're going to have on Thursdays, that's, the book's called Self-Confrontation. You're never going to see that in a bookstore in the top ten because the Christian world out, out there wants prosperity and wants to put themselves first in the sense of wanting all the goodies and all a successful life to the neglect sometimes of God's word and putting him first, taking him across daily and following him, dying to self and, and wanting what he wants for our, our lives. That's not popular today to confront ourselves but that's the problem is that we love ourselves too much. And that's why when he's, we're getting into it next week with that widow is that the sinful nature is funded by money. That's why there's such a battle related to being outward with our money because it funds and finances our sinful nature. And so that's, that's why God said you can't love God and love money at the same time. And, and so that he says there's no greater commandments than these. And he, and he talks about... Um, that they hang the law. And he saw this in Matthew. He said that those two commandments, all the prophets, those hang like a picture hangs. When a picture is hung on a wall, that tack or you can tell how many times I do it, um, the nail or whatever is holding up that picture. So those two commandments hold up the rest of the law. And, and so he says, those love is the, it, that's it. That's everything. That's why when we want to grow and how we make disciples when we come together, I always talk about it, focusing on God, focusing on others. It's two greatest commandments. Of course, we're going to grow as disciples the fastest if we're obeying those great commandments there. And so it's, it's beautiful how God has set things up. Verse 32. So the scribe said to him, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God and there is no other but he. 
And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Everything is, is, is dependent upon love. You can say, and I can say, we're the most spiritual people, we're the most mature Christians, but if we don't have love as the predominant characteristic coming out of our lives, we don't know God or we don't know him well. That's for sure. And so we're supposed to allow God's love to melt our hearts, to allow us to be able to be um, loving others as he would have us love them. Because the fruit of the Spirit's love. It's funny because he tells us to love as a command, to love one another, but then he also says it's a fruit of the Spirit at the same time. So we're supposed to allow him to produce that love through our lives by communing with him and, and being in, among God's people and all those things, that how he set it up for us to be able to love him and love others the way he intended. So he, this, this scribe says this, and then verse 34, now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So the big question can be here, well, was he really sincere? Was he really trying to trap Jesus? Like this last guy seemed to be kind of on the fence and all of that. And some people say, well, he came with the intent to not trap him and was really asking sincerely, and this is why Jesus says this. But others say, well, he showed up with the intent to trap him, but because what he saw and how he was affected, that he opened up his heart. And, and so either one, he was affected. And Jesus said, you are not far from the kingdom of God, which was great. We don't know if we're going to see this man again. We may see him in heaven. We don't know, but it was, it was great that he affirmed that what Jesus said, not that Jesus, the rabbi, needed, or God in human flesh needed him to affirm what he said, but he agreed with him and all of that. And so he said, you're not far. And then it says, but after that, no one dared question him. I bet they didn't. You're just, you know, Jesus, uh, he's never going to win a debate with God. That's a bad idea. If you ever wake up and say, I'm going to have a debate with God today, um, go roll over again. <laughs> just go, go back to sleep because your day is not going to go well if you think you're going to debate God. Now Jesus asks them a question in verse 35. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the, son, the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. So this is interesting. How can, if this Jesus is in the lineage of David and he's his son, then how come David referred to him as Lord? Unless there's only one way that could happen, and that's if he's God, if he's the Son, if he's God in human flesh, and, and David worshipped him as God and all of that, and that's the inescapable truth that's revealed to them. Jesus said in Revelation chapter 22, he said, I am the root and the offspring of David. He's the root of David, and then he's the offspring of David. If you think of a tree, root, trunk of the tree, branches, then you have fruit. So in that scenario, Jesus would be the root and he would be the fruit all at the same time because in his lineage, he was the originator or he was the one that brought David forth 
And he was God that anointed David and all those things, but yet he's in his lineage, and he's part of his lineage, and in that sense, he's his offspring and all of that. And notice it says the common people heard him gladly. So the problem, the people that had the problem with the Lord Jesus are the religious leaders, not the common people, the regular average, average Joe, as we say, the average Joe, the average Debbie, or whatever name you want to put for a woman, you know, they received him gladly. They loved to be around him. You know, he was referred to as a friend of sinners. And that exhorts us as Christians. Because if unbelievers are repelled by us all the time, we're not representing Christ well. Because Christ lives in us. And, and they, Christ should be coming out of us, overflow of our relationship with him by the Holy Spirit to where people are attracted to Jesus in us. Because if Jesus is really overflowing us, they're really going to experience Jesus. And then they're going to be drawn. You ever had someone be drawn to you? They don't know quite what it is. And what it, we know what it is. It's they're drawn to the Lord in us. But if they're constantly repelled and want anything to do with us, we are not letting that come forth. And we're, we're not representing the way that we should represent in this world. We should be loving first. We're not called. We're called to be salt and light. We're called to speak up. For truth in this world, that is true. We need to do it judiciously. We need to do it spirit-directed. But we're, we're called to engage unbelievers. And unbelievers are going to do unbeliever-type things. And he hasn't called us to be the sin police. He hasn't called us to be spiritual attorneys coming in and busting people and focusing on their behavior as unbelievers because they're unbelievers, that's something that Christians have a hard time understanding at times, and myself included. We can love unbelievers. Sometimes we think, well, if they don't, are not open to the gospel, then I, I'm not going to love them anymore. It's like, no, God's called you to love everybody. He didn't say, oh, you know, you need to love your Christian neighbor as yourself. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. And there is long-term farming going on spiritually with unbelievers at times, where it takes a while for them to see that we're legitimate, we're authentic, we're truly loving unconditionally, we have no agenda. You know the people at the shelter? You know, that so often they're looking at us like, what's in it for you? You know, what, what, where you, what's your agenda? What do you want from me? And we, like, we don't want anything from you. Well, I have another church I'm going to go to. Okay, that's great. But what do you need? What are your clothing needs for your kids? How are you doing with food? You know, we're not, we're not doing it to, to have people come to our church. We're doing it because we love people. And wherever God's called them to fellowship, we want to help them. We're willing to take them, give them rides to other churches. That's not, what, that's not the, the, the agenda. We don't have an agenda like, like that. And that's what they need to see. And that's why these common people heard him gladly, because they recognized he was speaking the truth, and they were drawn to him by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always going to testify to people's hearts that Jesus is the right decision. That's what he does. He convicts them of sin. He shows them that they're sinners, that they need him. They show, he shows them that they need to put their faith in him. He's, he's working 24 hours a day in that way until that happens and, and someone surrenders their life to Christ. And he wants to use us. But if we're acting more like a Pharisee, they're not going to be drawn to him and us. They're going to be repelled by us. We're supposed to be good witnesses. It's a good exhortation to all of us. Verse 38. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes 
who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. So then he says a warning against them. Beware of them. Again, all these things that they like, long robes gets them the respect. Long greetings get them respect. Um, the best seats in the synagogue get them respect. The best places at feasts get them food and respect. Um, and, and so they devour widows' houses. All of these things, pretense, long prayers, all these things are man-centered. They're inward-focused. They're blind guides. They are not healthy shepherds or leaders. It's all about them. It's all about inward things that they're getting as a result. They're not being outward and caring for people. And he says that beware of them. Watch out for them. Be careful. And it's an exhortation for also for ourselves to not be that way. Be careful your motivation for doing something. Why do we do this? Why do we, is it because we're going to get approval from someone in church or we're going to, you know, we have to be careful of our motives. Are we really doing it for the Lord? If you're serving the body of Christ, and every single one of us should be serving somewhere in the body of Christ, if we are doing that, who are you doing it for? Are you doing it for yourself supremely or are you doing it for God and that you love other people? It's supposed to be for God and for other people. Let's pray together. Father, we want to be right before you. We want to represent you well. Lord, we want to love you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. We want to express that love to you in many different ways. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to grow in our love for you. Thank you, Father, that you know when we have a heart that's committed to you and and that wants to do the right thing and wants to honor you. We thank you that you see our hearts. Lord, in that sense. And help us also, Lord, to love our neighbor. First of all, around our, around our homes, where we live. Help us to make inroads with them for you, for the kingdom's sake. And help us to love one another in our church, Lord. To be sensitive to one another's needs. To be, to be caring for them and watching out for them. And be willing to put our love in action by service, Lord. Thank you for... All of how all of that happens already in many ways, Lord. But we pray that those things would increase and that we would care for one another even more. Help us to get our eyes off ourselves and onto others, God. We love you, and we want to bless your heart by serving your people and to caring for people that need Jesus. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.